0: Welcome to the Doctor's Lounge from America's Web Radio, sponsored by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. This is Dr. Mike Karuchak. I'm your host for this week. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Together with Dr. Hal Schertz, who alternate weeks with me, we bring you both knowledge, book knowledge, and experience taking care of patients all day, every day. And because of that, we can bring you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio. So thank you for being with us. As as you know, uh, if you listen to my shows at all, that we've kind of gotten away from my favorite topic, which is healthcare information technology, because there has been so many... Other things going on, most notably with direct primary care and the successes going on there and the things going on with Capitol Hill that we talked about last week, uh, that I am very happy this week to have a wonderful guest, Twyla Brace RN, who is the president and founder of the Citizens Council for Healthcare Freedom, Health Freedom, and is also, I believe, still the, uh, the author of the uh, Healthcare Freedom Minute. And I'm I'm delighted because I, I like to get back and talk about healthcare information technology. Twila has published an excellent book, a must-read that is called "Big Brother in the Exam Room," uh, and oh, the dangerous truth. That's the second title. Yes, the dangerous truth about electronic health records. So, Twila, thanks so much for being with us, and I'm, I can't wait to hear about your book.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much. So, uh, the,
0: the hist- you have to understand history, I think, to understand where this has come. And we have talked about this a few times uh, over the years. I think sometimes with you, because uh, I've, I've learned a great deal from you, Twilight, especially about what HIPAA is really all about which is in this book um, but let's go all the way back to the 40s and world war ii because that's really where the slow painful slide to where we are began so give us a thumbnail sketch of where that started
1: yes so in calling it big brother in the exam room you know i could just talk about the surveillance and i could talk about the patient safety issues but it, it, it doesn't get quite to the heart of the matter as to why on earth, I mean, how on earth did we actually arrive at this point where we have this machine in the exam room that is um, tracking patients and controlling doctors. And it really came from the fact that Congress um, has implemented law after law after law after law to take payment for medical care out of the hands of patients. And so those who are paying the bills have decided that they uh, deserve access to all of our data they deserve track uh, to be able to track us and profile us they deserve being able to tell the doctors how to practice medicine and to decide what patients can and cannot have even though they have no obligation to the patient they are not doctors you know whatever right and so but it's all because unlike anything else right you buy your house and you you make decisions you buy your car and you make decisions and and the government and and you know Know, third parties don't come in and tell you, you know, you can't have, can have that door there or you can't have that door there, right, at, in, a, in a house or stairs or, you know, whatever it is. Yes. Um, and so back in the 1940s was when it began and um, Congress had implemented page, uh, page, <laughs> that's cute, price and wage controls. Uh, during the war, and so employers wanted to try and figure out some way to compete for employees, and so they asked for the ability to offer health insurance to their employees, and um, the war board allowed it to happen without the employer paying taxes on the cost of that of providing that coverage and then a year later the irs actually issued a ruling allowing it and then in nineteen fifty four congress came and made it permanent and that's why today i mean that's just that's one piece of what we have is a third-party payment right we have we have the employers who offer Coverage to their employees and then those employers too limit, you know, the type of policy that's available, sometimes the coverage that's in that policy, sometimes which doctor or hospital uh, system that they can use. And that was the beginning and then Medicare came in and, and did it for seniors and, um, and Medicaid for the disabled and for the poor. And Obamacare (laughs) comes in and does it for, you know, sort of like the middle class. (laughs) And for the most part, um, the majority of people in this country are now, the medical expenses are paid for by a third party, not by them as an individual. And so it used to be it used to be just just, you know for your listeners, it used to be I had a I had a guy who was about eighty years old and I was giving a presentation on the Wedge of Health Freedom, which is our initiative to pull to bring together patients and doctors at at the cash level basis. And he said he said, Well, you know, in the early nineteen seventies I had to have a heart I had to have heart surgery, and my insurance company sent me a check for $68,000, and I used it to pay my doctor and my hospital. And see, that's real insurance. The health plans are not real insurance, so that's real insurance. There's no interference there, and as he said, it was so simple. And that's how, that you know, that movement away from the individual paying their bills, their doctor's bills and their hospital's bills, is how we got to the point that these third parties have decided that our data is theirs, and you as doctors need to be under the control of them.
0: Well, absolutely, and and that distinction is extremely important. In fact, I was on a panel earlier today with some folks talking about direct primary care, and we made this distinction, which is that there is a huge difference, and this isn't obvious unless you make it clear, that that there's a huge difference between your person that you know there, uh, the patient, the heart patient from the 70s, actually had to pay for their care out of their own pocket and get reimbursed which is hugely different than if the uh, physician and hospital get paid directly from the third party. And it doesn't seem like much of a difference at first unless you understand how important that is and it's that fork in the road taken that has led to everything else and so you know you and I have talked about this before that, that this is you know Obamacare was just the last step in a long slide there was nothing truly revolutionary about it it was just more of the same and uh, and of course you know with the passage of the uh, uh, ARA which had the high tech and the meaningful use now other things that have happened and you're going to tell us about that
1: Mhm and so I know that you, as a physician and the physicians who are listening to this, and anybody who's doing data at the physician's office or at the hospital know all about uh, meaningful use and uh, everything that's involved in that, uh, which essentially it's it's interesting to me, you know, that uh, the Obama administration did this um, uh, four weeks. After inauguration, exactly four weeks after uh, his inauguration, the um, Recovery and Reinvestment Act, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, was um, was signed into law. Four weeks, which means that there was plenty of time before he ever got um, elected or inaugurated, where this bill was being worked on. And um, what my book will talk, well, what my book talks about, is how it was looked at as the foundation for the Affordable Care Act. So it was so important for the Obama administration and for the Democrats who were in charge at the time and for the liberal and progressive organizations who were working with them, it was so important for them to make sure that the electronic health record was mandated um, because they understood that the only way to have a national health care system would be to nationalize the data system. And, And, you know, Hillary had this in her bill, too. Of course, her bill didn't pass, but one piece of her bill did pass and that was HIPAA. And HIPAA took away the right of individuals to consent to how their information is used and who sees it and you know, they have no control over it. It's it's not a privacy law. It's it's a disclosure law. And so um, so without HIPAA the electronic health record could not have been mandated. But because HIPAA was there, right, and then the Obama administration saw this was the way to make sure they could have a national health care system, they mandated the electronic health record in order to be able to access all the data to control the doctors um, and to, you know, do all the tracking and the profiling and the risk adjusting and all this kind of the the um, individualized risk scores on patients and so, all of yeah, this stuff let's, that's let's, in the Affordable let's Care Let's
0: hit that really hard, twilight because that's another place, and again, I learned this from you, nowhere in maybe the history of, of the whole country, but at least in the history of healthcare, has there ever been a law or a bill or a piece of legislation where the culture surrounding the bill, i.e. privacy, and the actual bill, which is anti privacy, were so different. <laughs> and never has that ever been the case. And, and and what you're saying here is that, you know, everybody thinks this actually raised the level of privacy when in fact the opposite is true.
1: That's right. I I call it one of the greatest deceptions foisted on the American public. And I can tell you from uh, a visit maybe two years ago to Congress where we asked all the staffers. We had like 22 meetings. We asked all the staffers that were in these meetings, and if there was a member there, we asked them to. But I think this was a time where we didn't have any members. And we asked them, you know, when you sign that you know HIPAA form in the doctor's office, what does it mean? And to a person... They said that it means that my information is between me and my doctor. These are the staffers in Congress. (laughs) Right. These are attorneys. You know, these are policy people, and they have no idea, and they don't read. They don't read the form. They don't read the notice of privacy practices to realize it's a notice of disclosure practices. So this is, you know, they called it the privacy rule. They called it the notice of privacy practices. Um, They everything to to talk about. They do things like um, tell you you have to stay ten feet back, you know, in the in the pharmacy, right? Or or that you can't talk about a patient in the elevator right but but in reality if you talk to the average person that's not the kind of thing that would really get their goat right no. if they understood that beneath the surface where they cannot see all their medical records are an open book for their doctors, hospitals, uh, data clearing houses and others to share. Well, actually, the data clearing houses aren't. They could, but they can't. That's a whole other story. It's in the book. <laughs> um, but anyway, so all of the ones who have their data can essentially share their data hither and yon without their consent because that's what HIPAA allows. And so... You know, a person really doesn't care necessarily that someone comes to a hospital and says, is Mrs. B here or is my mother so-and-so here? And they just really want the hospital to say yes. But the idea that the hospital will will share it with countless other corporations and entities and researchers and, and others, you know, that they'd right. say uh, no.
2: All
0: in the no, name of quality control, right? This is all in the name of uh, that ethereal and other deceptive concept.
1: Which is only compliance control it's not quality control there's nothing quality
0: about it oh no no in reality there's definitely nothing yeah. quality about it that's right. that's the label they they put on it as well right. as compliance to make it sound like that they actually care that they're actually doing something right um so we are approaching the end of segment one we're going to have uh Twyla here for all four segments so stick around you're listening to the doctor's lounge on america's web radio stay with us Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week here with uh, Ms. Twyla Braze, R.N., the founder and president of the Citizens Council for Healthcare Freedom and author of... Uh, a new book on electronic medical records called Big Brother in the Exam Room. So before we move on, let's make sure we understand what, uh, what you told me you want folks to do, and I think this is a great idea, which is uh, for the physicians who are listening especially. But even if, you know, you're not a physician, you need to buy this book, and if you're a doc, uh, you know, put this in your waiting room, put multiple copies in your exam rooms, because uh, everyone who touches this book finds it a very engaging read.
1: Yes, so... I just had just a few days ago a a hospital nurse who read read it from front to back and she said, you know, every patient needs to read this book. She said it mirrors what's happening. And um I've had a um a physician tell me that he wanted to under it was like he wanted to underline every <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm going to highlight every sentence. The <laughs> Make the whole thing yellow.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um but he but he uh his wife uh is an English major and she said it was written clearly, concisely and understandably and I thought, No, okay, that is that's high praise from an from an English major. Absolutely. And um, and so I had somebody else who knows nothing about healthcare, uh, is gradually learning but really knows nothing not in the field at all, who was just her word for it was that she was flabbergasted by what she learned. And so I think, you know, the idea of putting it in the exam room or putting it in the you know, for patients to just kind of flip through, right? I mean it's only twenty three ninety five and it's just um I would call it evergreen. Like most of this will not change because I've given the entire history. I've talked about machine learning and where they want to go. I've given quotes from like 250 experts. And so I, I had one reader who said that I would, that she read a quote of something, right? And then she looked back into my <laughs> numerous foot, footnotes, 1500, uh, more than 1500 footnotes, and she said, I can't believe it. They actually really said that on a government website. And so I think, you know, for doctors who really want to help their patients understand what's happening in the exam room, the burdens that they're facing to uh, document all of this, to ask these questions, to get the patients to, for instance, you know, take get vaccinated when the patient doesn't want to, right? To, to learn that this is one of the things that's being gathered through the electronic health record and tracked and scored, right? And so to put it in the waiting room and just let people kind of thumb their way through it or, you know, in the exam room while they're waiting, this is just one way to, our, our whole thing is not to sell books. Our whole thing is to really change the reality in people's minds so that they can see what's happening here. And then maybe Congress and state legislators in particular um, will start to, the whole dynamic will start to change as people realize how much danger they're in from the current electronic health record. So I do make that really clear in the book. I call it the government EHR. It is the Certified Electronic Health Technology, CERT, as you probably know, that's what it's called. Yes. And this is mandated by the government. Now, there were electronic health records that doctors had before this, and they loved them, and they worked for the doctors, and they um, met the workflow. I talk about workflow in here so the patients and, and individuals know how the current EHR doesn't work for workflow. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, right? And so I make it really clear that I'm talking about the government EHR the yes. government EHR and there there can be EHRs that really work well for doctors but that's not the EHR that's been imposed and doctors i mean and patients need to understand that's the one way is just to make that book available
0: well the history of our practice my practice in atlanta is a testimony to exactly that cuz we had EMR for 5 years before meaningful use came along and we were doing great we mm-hmm. were doing fantastic until You know, the regulations sucked all the oxygen out of the room and creativity and innovation were replaced with compliance and that was the end of it. So you're exactly right, and it's and it is a tragedy, and I, and I think you address this in the book that that health information technology has so much potential to empower doctors to take care of patients, for patients to get better care, cheaper care, all of those things, and you know here we are, you know, ten years downstream from the beginning of of the end, and and things are are worse than they were before,
1: right? Because the purpose of the government EHR is not to take care of patients. Oh, no. The purpose of the government EHR is to collect data and to do population health. I've got an entire... Uh, chapter on population health, I just I had to let people know that that they want doctors to look at populations, not the individuals sitting in front of them and to make decisions and collect the data so that they can have all this data on populations and um, so the purpose of the government EHR is not to take care of patients it 's to control the practice of medicine and and that you know patients are just sort of looking at that electronic health record and they 're thinking about their a computer at home and they're thinking about the phone in their pocket and they're thinking about all this cool technology and they have like zero idea that this is not cool technology no. this is outdated and unworkable and you know a burnout uh, a problem with burnout So it's made their practitioners unhappy And unable to listen to them the way a practitioner, a physician needs to listen to a patient, look at them, listen, watch for cues, you know, listen to the history and and make the diagnosis even before they even touch them in many cases, right?
0: Absolutely. The, The subtleties matter. Absolutely. And, and that's been one of the greatest frustrations of docs. And you know this, I suspect it's one of the 135 some odd references uh, or studies that, that you discuss in the book is that, uh, you know, at best with electronic medical records, we're about 33% efficient because for every hour or for every minute we look at a patient or touch a patient, we're taking at least two minutes. Uh, you know, Twice the amount of time we touch patients We have to inter- interact with the EMR And it makes the job almost impossible
1: mm-hmm. I talked to one doctor Who is like out on an Indian reservation In some, you know, far distance place <laughs> And I, I touched him This is a little bit in the book But I talked to him after the book was written um, So the story's not in there But um, he said, you know He can write the entire thing up And he's just about to to press save or he's got some section where he just like wrote it all and then and then they lose power and he said and it's all gone because in our in our you know because this is nationwide this mandate right and if you're in a metro area you have pretty ready access you know you have good uh, uh, bandwidth and all that kind of stuff but he's in a more remote area and you know It just comes and goes. (laughs) Well, listen. But it's
0: still a mandate. In in the middle of Atlanta, twilight. I mean, you know, power outages aren't the greatest of our problems, but glitches in the system, network problems. I mean, there's a list of things as long as your arm that can interrupt the functioning of that EMR and, you know, and you lose data that you tried to put in or, you know, something happens. And, uh, and, and, you know, stuff you put in is not there to retrieve. So, you know, it, it, the only error in the story that you tell is that it doesn't go far enough. <laughs>
1: Okay. Well, this this nurse also told me um, who, who read the whole book. She said, "You know, uh, people don't understand this, but uh, they have no idea how many errors that we find in these medical records. You know, they kind of people just generally think that this is you know what it's supposed to be." But she she just talked about a hundred and ten pound adult who came to her unit. And she looked into the electronic health record to, you know, find information, right? And and the diagnosis is obesity. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Right? She said, you know, we don't have any idea. When we look at the record, we have no idea if what we're looking at is true or false. Oh, yeah.
0: Diagnosis momentum, I think, is the term. You know, somebody clicks the wrong... Yeah, well, somebody clicks the wrong button once. And it gets copied, 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 Mm -hmm. right? Because we're Mm -hmm. supposed to maintain these coded problem lists. Mm -hmm. And so it's so easy for that stuff to be, you know, cloned forward, you know, in spite of admonitions to the contrary. The systems are built to do that. And so, yeah, somebody, you know, clicked, meant to click underweight and clicked overweight. And next thing you know, you're 110 pound... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> emaciated patient in the unit is obese, and they're probably mm-hmm. getting handouts—you know, automatic mandated handouts about how to control their weight. So, yeah, it, yeah, it's, it's a problem.
1: I think it was funny, and I, it's, it would be good for patients to get a copy of their records. But I had a very simple, you know, appointment for a sinus infection, and I asked for that record. I, uh, you know, several weeks later, just to see, and I'm sort of blown away by everything that's in that record. That is like I can't remember how they said it. Something like important negatives or, or something like this. Pertinent negatives, yes. Pertinent negatives, right? Yes. All the things, all the things I don't have. You know, just like list after list after list after list of all the things I don't have. That's right. And and so you have to try and find the things I actually do have.
0: That's right, and it and it's it's buried in the note. Yeah, and that's that all has to do with coding and billing, right? We have to yeah. hit so many bullets to get billed, and and that's uh, where. You know, your your clinic note, as you look at it, your clinic note wasn't a clinic note, it was a billing receipt. Right. And, and that's why it was full of pertinent negatives and uh you know, I was telling this group I was talking to uh, earlier today outside of Atlanta that you know, interesting that you bring up an ENT problem. I mean, you know, our EMR generates a three page note for earwax. And <laughs> It's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's it's just hundreds and hundreds, terabytes of data are generated every day because we have to click all these normal buttons. And that's and not I, the way it used to be. It used to be that you could say, exam, otherwise normal. And everyone accepted that that meant you were a competent doctor, you did all the exams you needed to do, and if there was anything else to tell, I would have told you right now, and I'm not.
1: Right. And I, you know, that there's a chapter... A section in my book that's called Clinical Chaos. And it really highlights all these kind of problems. Too long, too long on notes, um, uh, system shutdowns, Um uh, false information, medical errors, you know, all of that kind of stuff that just is meant to help the patient understand that they actually need to be an active, aware, and, and they shouldn't have to be. But unfortunately, I think they need to be active and aware so that hopefully they can, you know, keep certain things from happening. Hopefully they can find out if there's wrong information in there. But you know, that is not the place that a patient should be in. I mean, that you should know about your conditions and that sort of thing, but the idea that the medical record could actually hurt you, <laughs> yeah right? That's yeah, yeah. not something that the patients are thinking about, and they need to be thinking about that because that's just the current state of affairs. Actually, one uh, I have uh, one um, quote in there from some guy, or maybe it's from a study, I can't remember, about the fact that, uh, this clinical decision support. Oh, yeah. They're supposed to be monitoring the clinical decision support to try and make sure that no medical errors actually reach the patient. And and they couldn't talk, in this study, I think it was, they couldn't talk, they couldn't find a CIO or a CMIO, I can't remember which one it was, yeah. who was willing to agree that they could for sure prevent medical yeah, 15 errors.
0: 15 seconds, go ahead.
1: Yeah, they just, they couldn't, they couldn't assure anybody that they could find the errors before they hit the patient.
0: Of course not. All right. We're at the end of segment two, listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio with special guest Twyla Brace. Stay with us.
2: The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank
4: you. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors, for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week with special guest Twyla Braze, the founder and president of Citizens Council for Healthcare Freedom and author of a new book on electronic medical records called Big Brother in the Exam Room. This is a great read. This is not an intimidating read. This is something that you know a non medically trained person can read and appreciate and become very engaged with. Uh, if you're a physician, you need to buy this book and stick it in exam rooms, stick it in your waiting room, uh, read it yourself, of course. Um, and we're just going to continue to talk about the book. I think, Twilight we were going to go on and sort of talk about what your thoughts are in the book on population health and how health IT integrates with that. So, Yes, so um,
1: this whole idea that the physician is supposed to be taking care of a population, that the focus is supposed to be on populations rather than on the patient has always been concerning to me and I thought it was important enough to put in this book so to have people understand that that's a key thing about the EHR is that they went to, as one person says, slice, do slice and dice analytics to figure out who everybody is, and it's part of the ACO, and I know that your uh, listeners being uh, doctors know what the Accountable Care Organization is and how um, the, the EHR is meant to be able to try and figure out whether people are going to be healthy or not healthy, and then try and catch them before they become unhealthy and try and decrease costs that way. And part of that is this slice-and-dice analytics. So they want to figure out all this information from everywhere to come up with who's going to be the expensive patient and who's not going to be the expensive patient. And then they want you as a physician thinking in the back of your mind at all times about the entire population that you're... Responsible for and determining your medical decisions for the individual patient sitting in front of you according to potentially the medical decisions you will make for other people in the population because, of course, the idea of a population health focus is that there will be a single pot of money out of which you will have to divvy out resources, and you'll have to think about the entire population rather than the individual, and they're going to use data uh, to do that slicing and dicing Um, when, um, Judith Faulkner, Judy Faulkner, who is the owner of Epic, which is one of the biggest EHR systems in the country, when she was talking to, at her users group conference in September of 2017, she said this, I have this quote in the book, she said this to all these users. You have to look, we have to look at who you are, what you eat, how much you sleep, and what your social conditions are like. We know these factors affect health. We won't be able to afford to continue doing what we're doing if we don't change the way we look at social determinants and population health. There's information that is not in the EHR right now that has to be accessible. So um, she goes on and population health folks go on to talk about things like the patient portal. Now, you know the patient portal has to do with meeting one of the meaningful use requirements. Yes. But it's also about patient-generated data. In other words, they really want patients to report on themselves to increase the amount of data that is in this record. And uh, Judy Faulkner doesn't want it to be called an EHR anymore. She wanted to be called a CHR for Comprehensive Health Record. And she said to her attendees, uh, she, by the way, has a net worth of $3.3 billion Mm -hmm. as a result of the mandate. Um, Exactly. She said if you want to keep patients well and you want to get paid, you're going to have to have a comprehensive health record. You'll need to use software as your central nervous system, and that's how you'll standardize and manage your organization. So... You know, from my perspective, when I look at this and I think of where the healthcare system is going, this is a tool. The electronic health record is a tool. It's not for patient care. It's about standardizing everything that happens in healthcare, and it's about taking control. And so, there's this wonderful quote from a physician who's also an authority in health IT. He does um, forensics um, testimony at at different uh, trials, and uh, he calls the EHR medical. Meta devices. And he has this wonderful way of looking at them. He says they are enterprise-wide command and control systems through which all medical transactions have to pass. Controlling clinicians and clinical resources. They are beyond just a medical device. They're really command and control systems. And that's, you know, I'd say that's, that's, that's about I right. Yeah?
0: Well, I'd say that's about right. I mean, it comes down to the same, the same theme keeps coming up over and over again. This technology has the potential to do good. It has the potential to do harm. It's like any other technology. And, you know, right now it's being pointed more towards harmful objectives than good objectives, which is heartbreaking for somebody like me who looked at this 15, 20 years ago and said this could be great, but mm-hmm. it's not.
1: Hmm. Yes, and so you know, one would hope that um, one would hope that the Trump administration, for instance, would see this. And one of the things that we're trying to do is to try to get the Trump administration to to not go the way of the health plans. You know, I talked some. About quality monitoring in here and I talk about value-based payment systems and some studies about value-based payment system and performance, uh, pay for performance and that sort of oh, thing yeah. because talk all of that's that. based on yes. data, right? Yes. It's all based on data. But studies have shown it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. a, you know, it's a good thing, I think, that physicians, uh, they spend all that time, uh, learning how to be physicians and then they come out, right? And then outsiders want to tell them how to practice as though they're stupid. Oh yeah, and um, right. Yeah, I know <laughs> so that I one. Can be controlled, <laughs> and you know it's kind of a good thing that uh, a lot of the studies show that it's very difficult to control physicians, and you know I, I take some some heart in that. There's also a study, a government study, that found uh, they were looking at clinical decision support. Uh, there, and there were two groups looking at it, and they, uh, amongst themselves, part of those researchers wanted it to be required that physicians follow clinical decision support, and others thought well, maybe that wasn't such a good idea, but. But just the fact that there were these government researchers paid for by more than a million dollars to do these studies, and they wanted, even though the evidence was weak or something, they wanted to require physicians to follow the protocol. And, um, and so, you know, I take some heart in the fact that uh, physicians who are kind of, have had an independent streak and hopefully maybe they still do even though they're being trained to be managed care doctors they're being trained to do all this collection (laughs) of data right they're being trained for all of this right i take some heart in that it's still difficult to get them to follow the protocols that would give them more money with performance you know pay for performance yeah, well,
0: part of the problem is the protocols are so meaningless. And it's, and again, it's, you touched on it well, which is that, you know, these folks who are making the decisions and imposing the rules think that, you know, healthcare is as simple as, you know, if X, do Y. If A, do B. And, you know, it's, it, there's a place in, this world for checklists you know pilots use them well for aircraft there may be some places like a you know a timeout for surgery is a great idea there are certain places it makes sense but everywhere else it really doesn't and you know they're taking this you know machine concept and and trying to force it into places that it's it's truly a square peg in a round hole
1: right yeah it's it's They think that they can standardize, you know, I'm a nurse, right, in an emergency room, children's uh, emergency room nurse before, you know, this organization began, and, you know, there isn't a patient that's alike. And there are things that you can do that are similar with patients, and there are, you know, generally, (laughs) right? right. (laughs) But you just can't standardize it for them. I mean, they might even not agree to do the standardized protocol, but they'd agree to do, you know, this other protocol, right, and it will work right and and that's what you have to do and and so it's just meant to take the entire practice of medicine and turn it into something else and I look at the e h r the government e h r as the way that they plan to make that happen um and and they're trying they're trying their very best to make that happen and and right now the public is not aware, and I think for me, I think there's a a great concern that the public is not aware, so they don't don't understand the danger that they're in from the EHR and from this move to standardize the practice of medicine, but the other danger that they're in is that the doctors who really care, (laughs) the doctors who really want to take care of patients and want to do the very best, all of this is being drummed out of them, And then the powers that be are putting non-physicians in and looking to the electronic health record as a way to put the standardized protocol, which the non-physicians will then follow.
0: Absolutely. right? Yeah. That's what the medical-industrial complex is up to as we speak.
1: Right. And so here we're going to lose. I do have a study in there from the Physicians Foundation in September of 2016 that said that 48% of, of 17,200 physicians surveyed are looking at how to leave medicine or significantly reduce uh, their number of patients.
0: Absolutely, at, I've seen that at, study. At
1: the time, as you know, when 10,000 uh, people are entering Medicare every day, yep. half yeah. of our physicians are thinking of how to get out.
0: Absolutely. And I, and I think it's all, it's all being choreographed. And I think that's why you're seeing this rise in, you know, mid-levels. I mean, the educational programs they're putting out there for mid-levels, Twyla, are, are scary. I mean, they're mm-hmm. taking folks off the street with minimal medical experience and a bachelor's degree, giving them two years of additional education, you know, maybe a hundred hours of clinical experience and, you know, calling them some new title which might include doctor in it at some you know the word doctor doctor of nursing practice right doctor of nursing practice for example Mm -hmm. and and putting them in the front lines of health care having them practice without a physician armed with protocols and uh yeah i i think the folks who you know when that physician's foundation study came out there was probably a few champagne glasses going up in certain corners of the world
1: yeah i uh I, you know, I've, I've heard stories and I think there will be many more stories to come about only being able to access a nurse practitioner. This, one, this one guy, he, he said, do you know anything about nurse practitioners? You know, he knows I'm a nurse, right? Yeah. Do you know anything about nurse practitioners? And I said, yes, but what, what in particular are you asking? He said, well, I had this nurse practitioner for what I thought might be pink eye and she stood like three or four feet away from me with a flashlight. <laughs> huh? I don't even think she could see into my eye. <laughs> no, don't think so. And I said, yep. I said this, you know, nurse practitioners have their place, but they need to stay it in their place. And it's, they, I've been telling people, you know, they don't have medical training. There is a difference between a nurse and a doctor, you know. And yeah, when I'm a nurse... Uh, 25
0: or 30,000 w- hours of, but of training, I want,
1: yeah. Right. And, and I want a physician when i when i'm when i need a physician which is you know most of the time for diagnoses right and so you know i i want that availability and i see that going away and so i see access to you know physician trained a physician trained a medically trained physician as going away at a time when you know i'm getting older oh yeah who's going to be there
0: I don't know. We're at the end of the segment. You're absolutely right, though. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us.
3: The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous
2: tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
4: In 2009, the membership organization, Docs for Patient Care, was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, Dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs the number four patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Karuchak, your host this week with special guest Twyla Braze. We are talking about her new book, Big Brother in the Exam Room, which is a, a treatise on the, the the disaster of electronic medical records and how it's much more of an instrument of government... And the medical industrial complex that much more than any effort to serve uh, doctors and patients. So it's been a great three segments. We got one more. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about. You've got some other sections in the book, and I'm very curious to hear. Uh, and this is unrehearsed, by the way, so I don't know what Twyla is going to say about this. Um, so so I may put her on the spot here a little bit just for fun and games. But uh, you you've got some opinions in the book on artificial intelligence. So do tell.
1: Yes. Yeah, so. Um so I looked at artificial intelligence and as um, people in that uh, field talk about you know it can also be called medical learning and uh it's it's it was interesting to to look into it and hear some physicians who are very hip on the idea of allowing the computers you know putting in the the symptoms, et cetera, and allowing the computers to come out with what the diagnosis is and what the treatment should be. And um, I, I remember I was at the Health Information Management Systems Society, which is otherwise known as HIMSS. I was at the HIMSS conference, and I was listening to Eric... Oh, yeah, Topol. what's this? Eric Topol? No. No. Not Eric Topol. Eric, the... Um, the chairman of google why can't it Schmidt? Oh. no whatever his name is yeah I can't, uh, remember <laughs> I can't believe i can't remember his name but anyway his comments were so interesting because he was very much into artificial intelligence and he was uh, frustrated years ago when he wanted to do uh, something having to do with electronic health records but he didn't have the ability to access the data on behalf of google uh, and figuring all of this out and um... But he said, what I thought was really interesting that he said was he was very excited about artificial intelligence. He thought that, you know, the computers could look at, you know, eyes and um, x-rays and scans and everything else, and they could figure out problems quicker and better than doctors could. But then he said, um, however... There needs to be a doctor making the final decision because the computers make errors, and we haven't been able to figure out why. That's and right. then he gave this great story. <laughs> he said, "You know, they have these um, self-driving cars, right? And they're they're trying to train the self-driving cars how to how to drive without a driver, right? right? And all, and that requires training. And so, so he said, so imagine I'm in a car." And, um, my self-driving car runs through the, the stop sign because, and, uh, and the policeman comes and he charges Eric with driving through this, not stopping at the stop sign. And Eric said, well, I didn't do it. He said, well, who did it? And he said, the car did it. And so <laughs> the police officer asked the car, okay, why did you drive through this, the stop sign without, you know, without stopping? And the car says, I don't know. And he said, and the car won't know. Because the car is trained according to whoever's training it, and in California we have what's called a rolling stop. Uh (laughs) Ah, yes. And if it's been trained by somebody who does the typical rolling stop, well, the car won't have any idea why. And so he said it's all about the training and according to how it's trained. And so you know it can make these errors, and the computer has no idea that it made an error. It's just doing what it's been trained.
0: Right well computers at least so far aren't even self-aware so how do you even expect it to go through such an exercise but yeah i mean right. that's the there's there's a lot about you know what really makes up healthcare you know it it's more than just decision trees right i mean it's more than just you know i, I mean I, I would be happy to have you know some sort of assistant that that you know would you put the symptoms in and maybe make some suggestions um i think ai's got some potential for image analysis which is what you were talking about um right. but i have a real you know to me ibm's watson is kind of the the poster child for everything that's wrong with ai <laughs> <laughs> um you know not the least of which is the fact that it gets over promoted and oversold by its creator right and uh, you know Watson's thing as you know is this whole idea that it's a better oncologist than an oncologist um but it turns out that it's making dreadful uh missteps uh in in the in the treatments that it's recommending for certain cancers and you know, they're having some real issues with it because they're pushing too much too soon and overblowing the whole idea
1: Right, and I, I'm trying to remember now. was it England who said no now to Watson? There's some country's healthcare system, I believe, who has backed out of Watson.
0: Yeah, it's Maybe, I don't know if it was Canada. It is.
1: But someone. Um, but anyway, so so yeah, because they can't they can't trust it.
0: No, and it's no. you know, and it's it's overblowing even this whole idea of being able to be a better oncologist than, an, than a human flesh and blood oncologist that, that it's making better cancer recommendations than an oncologist. Well, all they're doing is putting a database of, of, of cancer treatment protocols together along with the patient profiles. I mean, hell, I can do that on a laptop. I, I don't know what it is that they're. It, it just I don't know. The whole thing reminds me of that story about the the magic nail in the soup. You remember that story? Um, Only vaguely, I'm sorry. Know, the beggar comes to town with a nail in his hand and says to the people of the town, I've got a magic nail here that makes excellent soup. All you got to do is boil the nail and you'll have the best soup you ever tasted. So they throw the nail in and they start the pot boiling. And he says, you know, we really make this soup good if we add some carrots. So they add some carrots. And, you know, this goes on and on, adding onions and vegetables. And pretty soon they have a pretty good soup, but it's got nothing to do with the nail.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So, uh, to me, um, that's 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 artificial intelligence right there.
1: Yeah. Um, maybe one little extra uh, comment about that. Um, part of what I found, and maybe you know that the FDA put out a recommendation, uh, a guidance. I'm sorry, a guidance, and they they don't need for clinical decision support to be regulated by the FDA if the practitioner you the physician can see all of the background and evidence that went in to this recommended treatment protocol right But they said, if you can't see it, like with these algorithms, then it has to go through the regulatory process. And there were these statements that came out from, you know, different pro-machine learning, you know, folks afterwards. And I include one of those statements in the book, which I'm not looking at at the moment. But really, it was talking about what they called black box algorithms. And they said, you know, it's thousands of data points that come together to come up with this treatment protocol, and that there's no way that anyone is going to be able to see what went into recommending that treatment. Now, uh-huh. I mean, <laughs> is there even a patient if you if if you're a, if you're a patient and you say ah uh, so how do you come up with that recommendation? You know, where's the studies that show that recommendation, and the practitioner can't even go back to even come up with anything because it's comes out of a black box I, I thought that, that even that description right black box algorithm I did yeah. use that as one of my subtitles um, because I thought people need to they need to see this this exactly. is where it's going
0: nope I agree well we've got about uh, five minutes left so the last thing I think we said we we're going to talk about is you've got some recommendations in the book steps to-do lists for doctors patients congress that kind of thing So so what do you think needs to be done
1: um well, you know, I think it's possible to get back to privacy, safety and freedom and in 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 looking at how it might be possible, I thought, you know, it's 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 fine to talk about a problem, but it's not fine to to not at least give some suggestions. So I came up with a uh, a list, and uh, somebody counted them for me. It was kind of funny. I'd never counted the totality of them together, but a physician actually uh, counted them and said, "You have 136 recommendations." <laughs> and so, yeah. I, and so, I have a list for Congress, a specific list for Congress, a specific list for, Congress, specific list for state legislators, another list for um, physicians and other practitioners, and another list for individuals, be you know, citizens and and patients. And and I say that you can do one, you can do two, you can mix and match, you can start at the bottom, you can do at the top. They, they're they not in any particular order, but I did number them so that no matter what, people would be able to talk about the number on the list. They could call me up and say, you know, number 20 on the patient list. Let me understand that one, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the really important things for states is for states to put in real uh, privacy laws and to give doctors the right to not have to share the data if the pa- if the patient says not to share it. One of the patient ones, which might be interesting to you doctors, is that I ask patients to ask the doctor, is this treatment a recommendation, your best recommendation, or is this like the only thing that you can click on the computer? Uh-huh. This, right? Because I I want the patients to be engaged and to know, Do is the doctor being hampered by the electronic health record or by, you know, the quality measurements and compliance requirements? You know, I, I, I want them to know that. And, and so there's a bunch of different suggestions like that. And, of course, I have suggestions for Congress, but I must admit that I find Congress to be somewhat um, unwilling, I think, to do anything on health care that, comes up against any of their major donors for lots of them, which are oftentimes the health plans. Nah, you're kidding me. Yeah, no. And the data industry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you know what? I, I put them in there because there are things that Congress could do, but I'm not, I'm not counting on them.
0: Yeah, I, I share your sentiment. I mean, one thing that's become clear uh, to me, and I'm, I'm sure to you too, through our odyssey in this Healthcare policy thing is that government's not going to solve any of this. They're not going to pass a law to fix it. All we can pray is that they don't pass a law that makes the ability for people like you to fix it impossible uh, and that there's still enough wiggle room uh, to do some neat things. Uh, but yeah, government's not going to touch this. Not in a million years. Mm-hmm. What else you have on the list that isn't Congress?
1: Um, so um, one thing is to just even uh, change the title of the notice of privacy practices to the notice of disclosure practices, and I think that states can do that. They can, uh, well, well, for one thing, state, states can do a lot of things under the Tenth Amendment that they just choose not to do. I think that's a great thing. I've actually told the Trump administration that they should um, tell practitioners that they that patients do not have to sign the HIPAA form um, because the HIPAA, the HIPAA privacy form makes people think that they're signing a consent form. So they shouldn't sign it, but it should say a notice of disclosure practices so patients actually know that their data is being disclosed hither and yon without their consent. Um, I think that there's other things that um, doctors can do, um, such as refusing the government EHR and taking the hit, taking the financial hit. right? Because actually, the hit of the EHR itself, you know, if you look into my section on costs, it's not only the direct cost of buying this thing. I just I list all these indirect costs, which I'm sure a lot of you already know about. Oh yeah, <laughs> your listeners know about, right? Oh, clearly, all... yeah. The
0: EMR costs more than the penalty would to blow it off. Right. I mean, that's that's clear.
1: Right, and so we could start to move back to freedom, uh, safety, and privacy. Maybe not in the hospital because the hospital will have the hardest time changing that sort of thing, right? Yeah. But at the doctor's office, it is something that the, uh, the doctors could choose to do and not, and not uh, hook up to the health information yeah. exchange.
0: Not We're running over time now. We've got to cut off. You've been listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio, an excellent program. I think one of the best. Dwala, uh, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thank you. All Thank right. you.
2: Thank you.
4: In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer... Please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs the number four patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you.
2: The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you.
4: In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the